Welcome to the fight with Teddy Atlas. I'm Ken Rideout, joined as always by Boxing Hall of Fame broadcaster Teddy Atlas and today's very special guest, a man who needs no introductions, the hard-hitting Jim Gray. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. Appreciate it. Hey, I like that hat. I like that hat there, Jim. You like that hat? Wear that just for you, Teddy. Thank you. It's a beautiful hat. Holly Frazier. Great fight. Of course. Hey, before we jump into things with Jim, I'd like to just rattle off some of Jim's statistics. They're incredibly impressive. 12 Emmy Awards, three-time Sports Reporter of the Year, 1997 Sports Broadcaster of the Year. He's worked Super Bowls, NBA Finals, World, Se World Series, Final Four, Masters, interviewed multiple presidents, star on the Walk of Fame, forward by the greatest quarterback in the history of football, Tom Brady, from the greatest sports dynasty ever, New England Patriots, and the author of the soon-to-be best-selling book, Talking to Goats. Jim, impressive resume. Well, thank you. It's been, uh, it's been a lucky existence and a wonderful life, and uh, I've really uh, been fortunate and uh, enjoyed it. And, you know, I've really enjoyed spending time with uh, Teddy Atlas, and uh, we've gone back a long ways and uh, worked some fights together, uh, some Olympic games together, and uh, he's given me that look, that... Uh, that look that only certain people get. And when you get that look, you know, I'm not quite sure how to take it, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we've all kind of been there and uh, uh, I'm sure I'm going to get it again during this broadcast on his podcast. So thank you for having me on and thank you for the nice introduction. Listen, you already made uh, Ken's day by having a forward where he could slip in there with the greatest sports dynasty, because if you haven't guessed, he's from Boston. So I you couldn't tell that. I, 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 had, I had no idea where Ken was coming from on that. No idea. So you already you already uh you already made him very happy. I'm gonna put up the reason why we're here with Jim today. This is the book, it's a beautiful book. I mean it it looks really nice too. And there it is, uh talking to the goats. And I don't know if you can see the back, but I will tell you that I would buy this book, besides the fact that I know you and I know that these stories are all real, but I would buy this book just for the blurbs on the damn thing. It's incredible. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen a book that has that kind of honor roll of of just great, great, you know, uh, performers that have given the accolades for this book the way they have. It's incredible. You, I got the other copy too, which you obviously could not put all the blurbs up. You had to cut some out. There was too many. And I was looking at the unfinished copy, the one that doesn't get published, and the blurbs that you had on there, I mean, it, it wasn't just about goats. It was like a who's who of goats. Uh, just, just an incredible array of people that you've come across in your life, Jim? Well, it, it really has. And, and I started when I was 17, Teddy, and my, and my first interview was with Muhammad Ali. That's and, not a bad start. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty good start. <laughs> you know, I was a videotape editor. I was a sports intern, and they were converting from film to videotape. So uh, I was in editing the Broncos show uh, in my edit bay at 7.30 in the morning. And I was just a very, very young man. I was 17 years old. And uh, the assignment editor came running in. And I had been there six months. And all of, the, all of the 
film guys in the union took the buyout. They didn't want to learn a new craft. So they were just hiring, you know, literally people like me, young interns and, and, and people off the street to, to come do this new craft. And it was a lot of money for me. So she came running and she said, Muhammad Ali's two and a half hours early at the airport and we can't reach the sports anchor. We can't reach the news anchor. We can't reach anybody. And you got to remember this is 1978. So nobody had a cell phone. Nobody had a beeper. If you didn't answer your home phone, Teddy, they couldn't find you. Okay. So nobody's answering their home phone at 730 in the morning. They're either sleeping or at breakfast. They send me out there. Ali gives me 45 minutes. Wow. He was great. He gave me the best compliment I had ever heard in my life that just propelled me in my head that gave me so much confidence. And he was having fun, but he said, you sound like the local Howard Cosell. Oh. And that was after he said, are you the one that's doing the interview? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I asked a couple of questions. He said that. So anyway, I came back. I was editing myself out of it. They weren't going to put me on television. So I was taking myself out and just using his sound bites. And the head of the bureau for ABC walked in there, a man named Roger Ogden. He said, let me see that tape with Ali. And he watched it the whole 45 minutes. He said, let me see that again. Watched another 45 minutes, Ken. And then after that, he says, huh, you and this tape are barely adequate. So when I got inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, just, just before your Hall of Fame, Teddy, uh, um, Mike Tyson did the intro. I said to everybody, I guess I've been just barely adequate ever since. Somehow that arrived here. <laughs> pretty, pretty damn adequate. <laughs> pretty, pretty damn adequate. Pretty damn good. And uh, you talk about a start that foresees a future that sets up a destiny for you. It's, it couldn't be better. I mean, you know, that old movie where they, they had that movie, I forget which one it was, where said, you're going to go out and a star is born. I mean, when you go and your first interview is Muhammad Ali, I think it's fair to say uh, something special is going on. And a lot of this, obviously, our audience, part of, obviously, the great part of our audience is boxing fans. We have UFC, we have MMA. And I think we have people that just like to connect the dots with life. Because I always said when I started this podcast, Jim, that it was going to be for me connecting the dots from boxing to life. Because life is a fight. I, I look at everything as a metaphor with boxing. Everything. That is something you have to overcome. Sometimes you get dropped. You got to get up. You got to make choices. You got to find a way to be in control. You know, and all the things that are part of, that are encompassed in a fight, basically overcoming. So we have a great audience that will be looking at all those things and listening for those things as we do this interview right now. And no better way to start than to go to maybe a Tyson story. Uh, he's one of the goats, obviously, that's in your book. And I'm going to start it by saying this, because I, I read your book. Uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was tremendous. I, I would really, I think the fans out there that are part of our show, they trust us. That if I think something's wrong, I'm going to say it's wrong. If I think something's right, I'm going to say it's right. If I don't know, I'm going to say I don't know. And 
trust me, you're going to enjoy this book. And I'll start by saying one of the things that you mentioned was Tyson had told you, and if this doesn't wake you up in the morning, I don't think anything will. He said, "You, matter of fact, you were talking about Tyson, and you said, I've always gravitated to people like Tyson because he can describe the tenets of Chairman Mao in great detail and how he impregnated a woman in jail who wasn't an inmate. <laughs> I mean, when when you when you read that, you say, "I got to read this freaking book." <laughs> I I got I got I got to freaking sit down and read this book. So take it from there. Talk a little bit about your first meeting with Mr. Mike Tyson. First, I want to say, Teddy, I, I really uh, appreciate what you had to say about boxing being a metaphor for life, because having spent time around you and seeing how you approach life and then being around boxing now for more than four decades, it's really, it, it, you know, you hit it right there. I mean, it, there's so much truth in that. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's all aspects of life in that, you know, the struggle, the rejection, the getting smacked, the smacking back, the, the getting up, the, the listening to uh, instruction from your corner, uh, being able to take criticism, from being able to speak your mind, from being out there by yourself naked, nobody else uh, being able to help you. You have to fend for yourself. There are just so many things. And, and when you just said that, it, 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 you know, it strikes me in a way that I hadn't thought of uh, after 40 plus years. Uh, and, and, and that's really good. And, and I'd like to steal that and use that from time to time because I think it's really, a, it, it's an instance where it really applies. As for Mike, my existence with Mike has been really, really fortunate, and it's been really, really good. Uh, Mike, no matter what has happened in Mike's life, the good, the excellence, the climbing to the top, the bad, the despicable, the heinous, all of those things, he's always had within him the wherewithal to answer the questions, to come and do the interview with me during those times. And I've always appreciated that. He's never hid behind a publicist. He's never tried to release a statement five days later. He's never said, I'm not coming out of my corner or out of the locker room, whether he had bitten a man's ear off or no matter what the circumstance was coming out of prison, for, prison from the rejection, he always stood there and answered the questions. And that to me says a lot about him as a man, a real man that he was accountable, that he was responsible, and that he would answer and face the music no matter what it was that he had done in his life. So I've always had tremendous respect and appreciation for that. Um, I don't agree with a lot of the things that he has done in his life, and I don't condone a lot of the things that he's done in his life, but I have a lot of admiration and a lot of respect. And he says, on that book cover um, that I want to make sure I get it right. Um, something to, to the effect that I'm his most trusted friend. Well, he has become a friend and he's become a friend through our professional acquaintance and relationship. And there's a tremendous amount of knowledge and intellect, as you know, Teddy and Mike Tyson, that line that you recited in the book, 
is true. He can tell you about days of grace. He has it on his shoulder from Arthur Ashe. He can tell you about Chairman Mao. He has it on his other shoulder and he can recite that red book. He can give you Shakespeare literature and quote it. He can read a novel and not only comprehend it all, apply it and recite it. So there's, a, there's, there's so much more within him uh, that, that I know you've seen over the years. And, and it's also a roller coaster with him. You don't know what's coming next. I mean, it can, it can be a panacea today and beautiful and very dark tomorrow, one moment to the other. So we've run the gamut and uh, through it all, you know, Teddy, I got lucky and, and this may be the wrong way to put it, but standing next to him made me famous in a lot of ways. A little bit like Cosell standing with Ali. Correct. Correct. You know, whatever he, he had done to be there with him all the time, you know, was, was, was great for me. Not necessarily what he had performed or done, but the fact that we were together. And, and like he says, these are his words, not mine. We, we were a great duo, and we are. And I embrace that, and I'm thankful for that, grateful for it. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct you to something that, again, I think uh, it was very powerful. And your book is very powerful. So I'm going to go right to it. He wrote you a letter when he was in jail for rape. There was one part in that letter that was amazingly powerful, but at the same time, you just mentioned he's a paradox, and he is. I think it's, it's a very fair way to put it. He, there's a paradox to him. Um, it was very powerful, but very concerning. Tell us about that letter, Jim, because this is something that obviously our fans have never heard. I got a letter from Mike when he was in jail. And Mike had never been to my home, and we were living in Atlanta at the time. Um, my wife worked for the Atlanta Olympics. And so I got this letter in the mail, and it was opened. It had come from the Indiana penitentiary system. And I had later come to find out that they open all of the inmates' mail before uh, it goes out uh, to make sure that what, what's being uh, sent out, I guess, meets their standard of what's okay to, to send to somebody. Um, so it was open. It was a five-page letter. I don't know how he knew where I lived. I don't know how he got the address. And I don't really know why he had written it at that time. I had not corresponded with him. Okay, I had not written to him. So uh, I had sent through, through Don King a couple of times, just my best wishes. You know, I hope he's getting through this. And, you know, I hope that this time is serving him, you know, so that he can, he can you know, become a better person. And, uh, and, and I got this letter, and it got to the second page, and there was a paragraph in there that said, Mr. Gray, they will kill my number tomorrow. And number in, in prison lingo, I come to find out, means that they will do away with this sentence. They will kill my number tomorrow, do away with my sentence, if I admit to this rape. However, I will never admit to something I did not do, and therefore I'm not going to admit to something like this. Next paragraph. However, there are four or five other things that I've done throughout the course of my life that are worse than what I'm accused of. Therefore, I feel I'm at the right place at this time. Wow. So that really, that really, wow, opened my eyes. And, 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 and I, I, you know, wasn't there that night in, in Indianapolis, so I don't know what happened, but Mike has always maintained his innocence. 
And he has always said he didn't do that. So when he got out of jail, he allowed me to do an interview with him. And I asked him, Mike, can I repeat this letter? Can I ask you this contents, the contents from this letter on the air? Or is this personal? If it's personal, I'm going to respect that. No problem. So he said, Mr. Gray, you can ask me whatever you want. And he always called me Mr. Gray, even though, you know, we're virtually the same age. Uh, I'm a little older, a few years older, six years older. He said, no, go ahead and ask me. So I asked him that question. I don't need to repeat it all. I said, what's, what's worse than what you're accused of? Well, he looked at me and he looked over at his lawyer, that guy from uh, Indiana or, or Nevada. I can't remember his name. Gosh, I'll remember it in a minute. And then he looked back at me and he said, it's probably best not to answer this on national television because I don't know the statute of limitations. However, what I wrote you is true. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, there's no statute of limitations for murder. Just, just saying. Oh, well, I, um, I, I can't, I can't imagine that's what it was. But I'm not. No, quite no, I'm, I'm just referring I'm, to. I'm just staying within a corridor of where we are that we don't know what it was. But the, I asked him about this, Teddy. I did an interview with him just recently, which is going to air on Fox uh, uh, on November fifteenth uh, at ten p.m. Uh, they're doing a special on uh, talking to goats, the book. And um, uh, Mike is one of the people that, that I interviewed. I said, you know, when you said that to me uh, or you wrote that to me, you know, you never disclosed what it was. I said, why did you put that down? He said, you know, I just I just felt I wanted to say that. And I was in a, it was a real dark time and dark place in my life. And listen, he was being honest. He has a he has an impish. I think that sounds like a crazy word to use with a guy who's been so destructive and so scary for so long but almost a kid like would you agree with this uh, uh jim almost an impish kid-like way about him uh at times like a vulnerability uh when where he lets his guard down and almost like somebody who's crying out to be to be liked to be cared about to to be you know maybe to be forgiven that may be, and I think he's reached out to you and a lot of folks, but I also believe that Mike, through it all, through it all, like we discussed a little earlier, but I didn't put this assessment on it, he's one of the very few forthright and honest, honest people in sports. You know, they'll say what exactly it is that's the truth at that moment, hey, you know, without a spin. Now, I don't know because you can't examine him under a lie detector if, in fact, what's behind any of it is 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 actually what has happened i don't know that it's you know it's not performing you know we're not performing investigations in these interviews yes we're, we are a little bit you, you are i mean it's an interrogation <laughs> just like this <laughs> jim let me let me go to another part of the book uh staying with obviously uh one of the most interesting people that you're ever going to interview you know Who's? I think it's fair to say he's in some ways he is an enigma, uh, Mike Tyson, because there's different dimensions to him as you've put forward so well, and we've just touched on. But the rematch with Holyfield, the bite fight. I know people would like kill me if I didn't touch on this, where he removed part of Holyfield's ear with his teeth. 
you were the first to interview him. Take us back there and describe that scene. I mean, it's it's really it's you talk about an incredible atmosphere, a crazy situation. He just bites someone's ear off, and there you are in the hallways, I believe, outside the locker room, and he actually comes out. And speaking to what you're saying, that here's a guy that didn't have to come out, wasn't coming out. I'm sure his people were telling him, don't come out, but yet he came out. Take us. Take us there. Well, John Horn was 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 very upset, and he was cursing at me and hollering. And I just said to John, I said, John, why are you screaming at me? I'm not screaming. Well, he's his manager. Just for the people who don't know John Horn at that time, if you know I'm going to put it forward in a complete straight way. He was, he was one of King's men that was put there to control Tyson, but he was the manager. Correct. So he was screaming at me. I said, well, you know, why are you screaming at me? I'm not screaming at you. So he toned it down. And, and as I was talking to John Horn on camera, Don King was walking into the, into the locker room. So I stopped Don. I said, hey, Don, hold on here a second. Uh, you know, we've got an audience who just paid a tremendous amount of money to watch this fight. And Don said it wasn't satisfying. He wasn't happy with the outcome. I asked him if the guy should be paid. He said, yes, he thought they should be paid. Uh, but that, uh, you know, boxing is unpredictable. I said, well, what are you going to do now for all of the fans who tuned in for a fight to make sure that Mike Tyson addresses this audience before we leave the air? He says, well, I'm going to go in there right now and talk to him. And one thing about Don, Don does not want to look like he's letting the people down, particularly all these folks who just paid whatever the price was back then. I don't remember what the price was, $49, $59, $69 back then. This was 1997. So, uh, he, uh, he went in and got Tyson and Tyson came out, you know, with just in a few minutes. And what I, what I most remember at the beginning of this is Mike stood there. It, it maybe took 10 seconds for us to come over, but that 10 seconds was a long time. And I could see above his eye, it was his left eye. Uh, the, I believe it was his left eye. I could actually see the orbital bone and it had not been uh, stitched up yet, Teddy. And you've seen a lot of things in boxing, but this was really deep. This was like looking at a man's skull. And, you know, the bleeding, it kind of stopped, but you could see not only all the red and the pink, but you could see the white in, in, inside of there. And it was just, it was just, wow, I'm thinking, how's this guy not going to the hospital, getting stitched up? So, so, and that had come from the headbutt. And they had been complaining about the headbutts from the first fight. And, and Mitch Halpern didn't do anything about it uh in their assessment and and it was it, there was a lot of accuracy in that okay and so holyfield had headbutted him here and it, it caused this this deep gash so that's the premise that we start the interview and i'm looking at this thing and he just bit another guy's ear and i'm looking at this guy's i'm look, literally looking at his skull so he comes out and i asked him you know to take it in chronological order and tell us what had happened and you know how we got to that point and i said you've you've got to address this ear biting uh, you know you guys said, I did address it. I addressed it in the ring. And, you know, he answered all of the questions and, you know, he was still obviously amped up and he didn't know if he was going to be able to keep the 30 million. And he didn't know, you know, if he was going to be suspended from boxing and he didn't know, uh, you know, really what his actions were going to lead to. And he felt at that time that he, he said it, you know, I've got to feed my family. I've got to protect myself. And that this was the only way that he felt that he could get Holyfield to stop butting him. And so that was, that was the reaction. And, you know, you've seen everything in boxing. Holyfield bit a guy's ear before. Holyfield bit, a, bit somebody in, in the Olympic trials. So Holyfield, 
you know, for as much as he was jumping around and everything, had to understand it because, and in recent, more recent memory, more recent years, he said, yes, he, he, he did. You know, he, he had bitten somebody before. Um, so, uh, but the fact that we hadn't seen it in a, in a heavyweight fight of this magnitude, right? And, uh, but, but, but I was impressed in that moment for whatever the reason, Mike just didn't walk away just didn't go hide behind the commission, go hide behind the fact that he would be suspended and, and revoked, didn't go hide behind the fact that he wanted to keep his money, didn't go have uh, Acilia or, or, or any of the folks from Don King Productions, uh, Dana Jameson, didn't have any of those folks come out and do the statement for him, uh, didn't send out Charlie Lomax or Don. He did it. He did it himself. And he was the one that bit the ear earlobe, so he was the one that was going to come out. And so um, Showtime was great that night. David Dinkins, our producer, I mean, uh, uh, Steve Albert called it when it happened. Uh, and Ferdy, uh, they were all over it. And uh, uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a brilliant, brilliant uh, production. And, and the best thing that, that David Dinkins did that night for me, because that was one interview I walked away from Teddy where I said, I got it right. I don't have to, to you know, I would have never forgiven myself if I screwed that up if I stumbled on a word, if I didn't listen, if I didn't follow up with the right questions, if I didn't ask everything that needed to be asked. So I was, you know, it's one of, uh, out of thousands that, you know, I was, you know, how we all review things. Yeah, I didn't have to beat myself up or keep reviewing that because I, I got that one right. And, and it won an Emmy, but the best thing that happened was David Dinkins didn't try and interrupt me and have caused me to maybe lose my train of thought. And he, he, he trusted all of us. And uh, I hope one day David can get into the hall of fame. Because uh, he's, he's he spent a lifetime sitting in that chair over there, showtime since it started. You need a good team, obviously, which, you know, as you said, a director, a producer that's going to let you do your job, going to trust. I think that's the key word that you're probably looking for, trust. And um, you appreciate that trust. And let me just touch something just for the fans that are right now, right now saying, oh, my God, wait a minute. I never knew Holyfield bit anyone. He didn't bite a piece of a body off. <laughs> what I don't, what he did. Well, that's true, but he, he, but he did bite somebody, correct? I don't know that he did, but yeah, I'm, he, I'm he, going he, by, he yeah, I'm going by what you said and what you're saying, and I trust you. So if you're telling me that oh, he no. said that, you're but it could be, a, me, though. you're looking at me. No, no, not you at all. I don't know. I'm not sure. With with love, with love, but when. <laughs> When you'd say that, I just don't want people to get the idea like an appendage of the guy's body was bit off the way Tyson did it. It it could have been a situation where he's in up on his shoulder and he's against him and his mouth yeah. against the guy's shoulder and he he takes a nibble but not a piece of the body out. Um, you know, right. and again, I don't know the confirmation of it. I just know that it's coming from a man that I know has spent his life uh, dealing with the truth. So. That's good enough for me. Yeah, it was it was Jakey Winters in the Georgia Golden Gloves competition. A teenage Holyfield uh, bit him uh, on his shoulder after being knocked down in the second round. But at least I got it right. I knew he. Had no, bit no, you did. No, no, and 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 Just I am without <laughs> and without having that knowledge. I said maybe it was on the shoulder because that happens sometimes. You know, fighter gets on the inside. He's pinned up against the guy. His mouth is on the shoulder. And he takes a little nibble, um, <laughs> you know, but not a, uh, not a, not a mouthful. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off of that to another 
at the least impactful story that I read in your book. And one of the reasons that I was so quick to say yes when you asked to come on the show to talk about your book was not only our friendship and who you are and what you mean to me, but this book tells stories that I didn't even know about with Tyson, besides obviously all the other goats that you have in there. But I thought I knew about every, just about every story. And when you read a book about somebody who obviously is a superstar, like Tyson was, an icon, I guess you could say, and, and now you're reading something that you don't know when you feel you're pretty versed with his history, it gets your attention. And this one got my attention. I want you to take us to the story where you were going, <laughs> I mean, I, when I, it's hard to even say it without like just scratching my head a little bit. But when you're going, you're driving outside his hotel and you notice something that was a little peculiar, a little different. Uh, a man being held by his ankles outside his third floor window by Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's please. funny because nobody got hurt, and 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 uh, no, and, I know. <laughs> I mean, that's well, a little different. Know, it's a little different. I'm hearing this commotion, and I'm walking back into the hotel, and I'm thinking, "Wow, what's all this going on?" And I look up, and it was like one of those three-story hotels, and it had one of those little like wrought <laughs> iron balcony, like where you open the 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 windows. It's not really a balcony, but like there's like wrought iron in front of it, so you kind of can step out, but you can't go too far out. Remember how Michael Jackson was holding like a baby over the baby. You know, yeah. it, was, it was like one of those little things, and it was just so I see. Except this was a lot bigger than a baby. Go ahead. Oh yeah, but I mean, it was that kind of balcony? <laughs> no, I know, I know. Okay, that kind of balcony, and I think yeah. there may be video of that one. I'm not sure, but anyway, I see this. You know, I'm getting close. I'm thinking, well, that's Mike Tyson. Like, what, what's going on here? Well, he's banging somebody up against the <laughs> iron, and he, he and he's and he's and this guy, you know, is, you know, is, this is this guy's, you know, in peril. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to drop so. this guy, and I'm yeah. just kind of. And you know, you, you know how you kind of just look around and you say, is, is this like real? Am I, is, is, I don't have dreams like this. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like shaking myself and don't drop him. And he's, and he's, he's, <laughs> I don't know who's listening to this podcast. I don't know if I should say it as I write it, but he, yeah, I, say it. I don't want to say it because my words will go viral, but it was B, can you fly? <laughs> can you fly? And I'm thinking, Wow. And anyway, so he finally lifts the guy back over and puts him over. So I just asked Mike about that too. I said, I said, what was the problem? You know, we never got into that. And he said, had to get the money right. The <laughs> money wasn't right. And I had to get the money right. I said, did you get the money? So we got it right. I said, well, what possessed you to do that? He said, well, I, again, dark space, dark period. But guess what? I got what I wanted. <laughs> and that was the only way I was going to get it. So Guess he had to get the money right, but that was something else. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. I I would say that's not exactly. Said, yeah, you know, that was just a part of my life. That was that was then. Yeah, I think Teddy's wanted to do that with a few boxing judges in the past. <laughs> yeah, I must admit that that might get helped him get it right. <laughs> it might help him get it right. Might have got the money right. Yeah, they get the decision right, maybe. 
finally. Ken, you take it, please. Jim, one of the th- the the first time I, I I was always aware of who you are, but when you became a big deal to me was the Pete Rose incident, and um, I think you write about it in the book. I apologize, I don't have an advanced copy for people listening. The book comes out on Tuesday, November tenth. But can you talk to me about the Pete Rose interview? Because like what Teddy described in the beginning of the interview, life is like a fight, and you have good rounds and bad rounds. And I'm curious to hear after having some time to digest that incident do you view it as a good round a bad round talk me through the incident and how you view it now and how you viewed it then well it's in it's in the book it's uh the uh chapter is the uh chapter seven your rose my thorn (laughs) and we kind of go through it all and uh um you know that was that was just it it was a uh the second game of the World Series taking place in Atlanta against the Yankees, and it was the all-century team. And from my vantage point where I was uh, in, the, in the Yankees' dugout, you know, this was a, a ceremony that was taking place just past uh, second base, shallow center field, just past the infield. And there was a big stage, and, you know, they were all up there on it, and you, you could see, you know, Ted Williams and Tony Gwynn and Sandy Colfax and you know, all the great players uh, uh, of baseball that had been selected to this team. And it was the first time that Pete Rose was allowed back on the field in 10 years because he had signed his own banishment away when he had agreed to the deal uh, with Bart Giamani, then commissioner, uh, regarding gambling on baseball. So because they had sold the uh, voting to MasterCard, baseball kind of lost control of that, of that ceremony. And so when the fans voted him in, Really, it was the fans' way of honoring Pete and saying, this is your Hall of Fame moment since you can't be in the Hall of Fame. So when Pete got introduced, you know, the introduction in, in, in the, uh, it was Centennial Olympic Park, the, uh, where the, uh, where the uh, uh, Atlanta Olympics had been played, it, it, since might have then been Turner Field, too, or it was just converting uh, Turner Field. It was a huge, rousing ovation. And... Um, Hank Aaron was also introduced and Pete even got a bigger introduction, a bigger, a bigger applause than Hank Aaron, who was, you know, obviously a national treasure and, and local, uh, you know, huge, huge, you know, to the Atlanta fans. Cause he did that in a Braves uniform. So anyway, he came off and we did the interview and, and I had interviewed Pete many, many times. I used to do the Phillies pregame show. One of my first jobs was in, uh, Philadelphia, uh, at a station called Prism. And so I'd known Pete very well, uh, been on his radio show. He had his own radio show, Teddy, uh, numerous times. So I probably interviewed Pete 7,500, 10 times, you know, a lot of times. And, or he had interviewed me on his radio show. So, you know, did the interview. It, it, he, he denied betting on baseball. He continued to deny it. He kept deflecting and it just went down that path. Um, but from where I was, I wasn't watching TV, which was a mistake. When you're on TV, you should be watching TV. I was watching it as the fans were, and it fell very flat in the stadium, with the exception of Rose and, and Aaron. You know, there was, it was, you know, you can't hear the music. You can't hear the symbols. You, you don't see the highlights. You don't hear the beauty of Vince Scully's voice. You don't get the melancholy feeling like you do for all those people home watching television. So when the interview came on, 
and I had been able to watch the interview now in retrospect, uh, you know, you could see how everybody was having this really soft, uh, gentle, wonderful feeling that took them back to a, a place in their in their youth or or somebody who they really admired, seeing, you know, um, uh, Frank Robinson or Stan Musial or whoever it was that, that that brought out that feeling for them up there on that stand. And um, so then this get this gambling interview. It was jarring to to the audience and and the way that Pete, you know, kept. Uh, saying he didn't do it, and my persistence in trying to, you know, have him recognize that this was an opportunity uh, to uh, move forward with his life. So, you know, chapter kind of deals with all of it, everything that went on, uh, all of the repercussions uh, from his words, from uh, my questions, uh, and uh, uh, we have seen each other a couple of times in the past, and. Uh, uh, it, it 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 was a great learning experience for me. Uh, tremendous uh, insight into myself and others. Uh, and you know, when you go through those types of things, um, you just find out a lot. And it really uh, it was it was it, it gives you a chance to grow. You wouldn't want to go through it again. You wouldn't want somebody that you know well to do that. But now that it's behind me, I don't want to say I'm glad I did, but it, 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 I'm, I'm better because of it. It was part of the, the way I describe things like that in our lives, Jim, is, and for fighters, you know, developing a fighter. It's part of what forges you. It's the fire that forges you into what you need to be forged into. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I'd been in some hurricanes before, but never quite like this. You know, never with all of the uh, uh, vitriol of the fans and 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 the threats and the uh, you know disparaging remarks and protection and and, sure. and and you know players boycotting you and things of this nature. So yeah, yeah, it was a test. It was part of the the journey. Yeah. Speaking about something that was well, to use your words, a hurricane. How yeah. did it feel? doing an interview and having the person that you're interviewing says, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, that, that, talk about a hurricane. Um, take us there. I And take us, I'm not going to give it away. Take us to what he does after saying he's going to kill you, which, which I think is just, uh, it's, it's, in, well, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> I, I I had asked him a rather innocuous question. Him being Tyson, right? Right. Just a rather innocuous question. And he looked at me and he started to answer. And just a few short seconds into the answer, he says, look, I'll kill you. I'll kill Don King. And I will kill you. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I said, for what? Why? And he started to answer the question. And 45 seconds later, he got up out of the chair and he kissed me on my cheek. And I got to tell you, Teddy, it was far more disturbing that he kissed me on my cheek <laughs> than when he was threatening to kill me as heavyweight <laughs> champion of the world. And, uh, you know, again, it's, 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 it's yeah, you know, you, you got to quote 
Don, only in America, like where, where else, who else, how else would this exist at any other time with anybody else? And it was just, it was just all part of it. But, but that's what made it great. And that's what made him great because the, the unpredictability, you know, first of all, the unpredictability with the passage of time makes everything better, but the unpredictability while you're going through it makes you, makes you be on your toes. Anything can happen at any second. And that's, there's, there's, a, there's a form of exhilaration in that because you're always paying attention when you're on television and you're always paying attention when you have the attention of people of that ilk, the heavyweight champion of the world, the greatest basketball player in the world, the president of the United States. You have a heightened awareness anyway. And then with him, it was just to a whole different level all the time. You had to hear every word. You had to be able to think, listen, and react simultaneously. And which which you did at an incredibly elite level, and that's why we're talking about you. You know, speaking about the other great goats that are in there, great athletes, you, you interviewed perhaps the three greatest basketball players of all time, Jordan, Kobe, and LeBron James. Pick one of them. I know it's hard. I'm asking you a terribly hard thing. But which one stands out of all the stories and why? So this isn't to be an avoidance, but I'm going to speak for the one who can't speak for himself anymore. Yep. Kobe, and I'm not putting Kobe ahead of Michael or LeBron. I got you. Got you. Uh, let, me, let me just speak to his character and the, and the man that he was. And I, I'd known him since he was an infant. And um, I saw him through the whole progression of virtually all of those 41 years, I believe. Um, and it still hurts, Teddy. It still, it still hurts to think that he's not here with us. And, and, and we still grieve, grieve for his remaining three daughters and his wife, Vanessa. Uh, Grief for his parents, Pam and Joe, uh, and and for all of those people who Kobe was close to, who he touched, um, and to see what this this man became, the myopic vision of of emulating and 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 patterning and wanting to be Michael Jordan, and then to achieve that height, to touch that perfection, even if it was just for a moment. And even though he told me, and I repeated in the book that that was an abstract idea and it wasn't real to him, but it sure was fun as hell to try and, to try and obtain it. And, 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 and the concept that, that he had of locking in and Mamba mentality and everything that he created and, and it was real. Okay. And Kobe just wanted to win. And if you got in the way of winning, you were in the way. Doesn't matter if it was a teammate, didn't matter if it was part of the organization, didn't matter whether it was an opponent, okay? Didn't matter whether it was himself. He had to fight within himself, too, to be better tomorrow than he was yesterday. Um, and that mentality and what he did, and then, and, and then to see him achieve those five championships, to see how he was, you know, uh, had to supplement his game to, to accommodate Shaquille O'Neal, and, and then to break out and get his own championships and, and, and how he was picked on and, 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 you know, 
literally Phil Jackson wrote in his book, he knew that Kobe hated him. He could feel his hatred and, and, and how, and how Phil had poured it on and, and, and was abusive in many ways uh, to, to, to Kobe. And he overcame all of that. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, to go through uh, what he went through in Colorado and, and to have that uh, dismissed, those charges dropped and dismissed. Uh, and, and, and to have um, to win those championships after that and then, and then to, to leave the game and to become known as, you know, in, in his passing, girl dad and that hashtag and, and, that, and that phrasing. Uh, of how much he was dedicated to his four girls and, and to spending so much time with them and Gigi and, and, and the love that he had for them and, and the new life that he had created as a storyteller, children's storytelling, and winning an Academy Award. So I want to speak to that goat. I want to speak to the man who can't, who can't give his own accolades anymore and, and tell you what a special human being he was with thousands of acts of kindness. For all of the things that he might have done as a competitor, this guy gave a lot to a lot of people and never wanted any recognition or acknowledgement. That's a true giver. He didn't say, bring the cameras here. Let me show you how great I am and what I'm doing for others so that I can somehow benefit from myself so that you can think I'm wonderful. He wasn't interested in all of that. He just did it. Okay, he just did it. And he was dedicated to that family. He was dedicated to his sport. And he had really, really, the makeup and the composition of a goat. And you can ask me what the definition of a goat is. Kobe is a goat. Okay? There's more than one goat. I know Ali said greatest of all times, and he was talking about singular. But we can expand on that so that there doesn't have to be just that definition. Tyson's a goat for the period of time that he had transfixed the world in its attention. And Kobe will always remain in that echelon. And for me, for me, have that, have that title. Michael and LeBron, that's going to go on forever. Uh, LeBron's still playing. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to evaluate errors. I loved Michael Jordan, and I, 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 I'm, I'm astonished with what he was able to achieve and accomplish and how he did it and the way he did it. And uh, we all got reminded it, uh, again with the great uh, ESPN show, The Last Dance. And I've got to broadcast those games, uh, those championships on NBC uh, with Marv Albert and Bob Costas and, uh, you know, the other folks that were with us, Ahmad Rashad and uh, Hannah Storm. So that was a great era uh, to have been involved with and to uh, Bill Walton and Isaiah Thomas uh, to have been able to uh, witness that firsthand and uh, Go through all of that was just uh, was just a, an amazing blessing, and then to see where LeBron has become uh, from all of those expectations in high school, uh, all the way up into winning this championship in the bubble, and the journey that he's been on through Cleveland, bringing them back a championship after leaving, and the decision, and uh, and now here in Los Angeles, you know where his number will be uh, retired up there, as well as uh, Jerry West and Will Chamberlain and Magic Johnson and James Worthy and and uh, Kobe Bryant twice, Kirk uh, Hearn, and all of those uh, banners that are, that are hanging in the rafters, Elgin Baylor, uh, uh, amongst others, Gail Goodrich. And, uh, and, and that's, he's a goat. LeBron's a goat. Michael's a goat. And Kobe, 
Kobe, I'm glad you gave me that opportunity to speak about him, Teddy. Jim, you mentioned Ali in your answer, and I know that you, you mentioned earlier that you interviewed him, was the first interview you did at 17 years old, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're the last person to interview him before he passed. Can you talk to me a little bit about your relationship, personal relationship with Ali? It wasn't before he passed, Ken. It was the last one he did on television. They didn't to go on television anymore. That was several years before he passed. Um, so... Um, my relationship with him was special. Uh, when he when he let me do that interview that we talked about earlier, when I was a, a very young man, seventeen. Yeah, uh, and uh, and he took a liking to me. Uh, so when when they when when they saw that he gave me that forty five minutes, they then sent me to the Sphinx fight. And then he was getting ready to uh, have an exhibition with Lyle Alzado in Denver, a Denver Bronco. And then so he saw me again. So you know. Uh, he then let me come and interview him before and after all of his, his remaining fights. And he, and he, you know, he kind of, he, he took great pleasure in being able to give a young man uh, a start, you know, and, and, and to, you know, to embrace that, you know, and to, and to not, and to not say, get out of here, kid. I'm not your high school project. He went like this. He went like this. He put his arms around you. Uh, instead of giving you the Heisman, you know, get away from me. And and so he, he, that just, you know, look, it, it, it opened up so many doors for me because Bob Arum saw that. And so now, now Bob Arum sees this and he hires me for top rank to come interview all of his fighters before the fights. Because if you can get along with, with Ali and he likes you, all these other people will see that and they will like you. And so it did. And then that, and then that opened the door to Julius Irving, uh, when I moved to Philadelphia to do the, the Sixers games and Chuck Daly. And so it just kind of propelled. So the relationship that I had with Ali was, was very, very, very special and unique. And, you know, he was, he was so good to me and let me have so many, and I write about him in the instance, so many uh, occasions where we were in each other's company and I got to learn so much and see his behavior and talk to him about so many different facets of life. Uh, you know, I was much too young when I was a kid to understand his stance on the war, but we got to talk about it much later in life and uh, uh, during uh, Desert Storm and, and the first uh, Iraq war. I uh, was with him uh, on, a, on a few occasions then and, and then uh, would go to visit him and uh, so forth. And Lani Ali, she was just tremendous. She was, she's one of, the, one of the great, compassionate, wonderful fighters in the world to not only protect his legacy and further it now, uh, in his passing, but to, to, to have taken care of him and to have been his partner uh, with him uh, through the journey of Parkinson's and, 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 and how wonderful she was. So it, it, was, it was great. That last interview uh, is an interview that I'm very, very proud of, uh, very honored to have been a part of. Uh, it was with uh, Ray Leonard, Mary Lou Retton, who revolutionized gymnastics in this country coming after Olga Corbett and Nadia Comaneci, and then winning in 84 and, and helps that, you know, women on the track for gaining popularity in uh, other sports in this country. Uh, she was there. Carl Lewis, the most decorated uh, track and field Olympian, uh, still to this day, uh, even with all that Usain Bolt has done, uh, Carl Lewis still has those nine gold medals. And, and we went with Muhammad Ali, the greatest athlete of all times. Uh, the goat, and we flew up to the Stanford Pool 
four nights before Michael Phelps left for Athens, before Michael Phelps ever won a single medal. He had never won a medal. So now you look back at that show, and it's the greatest track and field, the greatest Olympian ever and swimmer with uh, Phelps, the greatest in Ali and Mary Lou Retton, who did so much for gymnastics and, and for women's sports uh, in our country, and then the icon Ray, Ray, Ray Leonard. And I'll never forget Ali's last words on television. Um, we had a, a torch sent to us, like the torch he had lit uh, in Atlanta, but this one was for Athens. And he held that torch and he said, I'm the greatest, you're the latest. It's now up to you, go win all those medals. And he handed it to Michael Phelps. Wow, wow. Awesome. That's uh... what Michael Phelps did. And Michael Phelps, he's in the book, how that propelled him. In fact, he's on the, uh, the back cover, how that interview propelled him and made him think, I have gone from where I don't belong in this interview, don't belong on this set with these people, to giving him the confidence to know that, hey, you know what? They think I belong. Maybe I do. And that's just what you need sometimes. And you touched on that at the very beginning of this interview uh, when you had the opportunity, the privilege of your first interview being Muhammad Ali. And when he complimented you at a 17-year-old kid hearing that kind of compliment, that can be just a spark just the uh, confidence that you need to go to the places that you envision going to. Everybody needs to hear that they're good. That's some, everybody, I mean, that's a magic thing, uh, to just to be validated. I, I would be remiss if I let this interview finish without asking you, for me, something about one of the tremendous blurbs and endorsements of the book, which is just, I've never seen anything like it from all these greats. One came from Hank Aaron. And for me, Hank Aaron still holds the home run record. I don't know about you, Jim, but, you know, with all the PEDs, steroids, uh, whatever, for me, Hank Aaron is still the home run king. And in his inscription in the front of your book or the back of the book, he says that you stood up for him and that you suffered the consequences for doing what was right. Oh, I would love to know what he's referring to. And I think that our audience would love to know. Well, there's a chapter on him, and it's called Mr. Decency, Hammer and Hank. And uh, the man is a, is, is, a, is a national treasure and uh, the home run champion, and, and he suffered a tremendous uh, amount of discrimination and racism uh, throughout his pursuit of what he had to go through. Uh, and he says at the end of the chapter, God knows how many home runs I would have been able to hit had all of this, and this meaning racism, was not going on, you know, and everything that he had to endure and, 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 and suffer through because he was breaking, uh, Hank, Hank Aaron was breaking, Babe Ruth's record. And, and of course, Babe was a, a, a beloved and still to this day, a beloved, huge icon. And, and he's a mythical figure that's, you know, uh, that, that, that's taken on its own life based on his achievements and his excellence. And so uh, my wife and I were with my mother and father-in-law in New York City. 
And I had known Hank, you know, not well, but we were acquainted, you know, just like, you know, people in sports and you've seen them at banquets or you've shaken their hand or you've interviewed them. And I had interviewed Hank and we went into a restaurant in New York City that was on the water and uh, Hank was sitting with his wife. And uh, they were, you know, just sitting on a bench by the Mater D stand and we talked and my father-in-law was so thrilled to be able to meet Hank Aaron, somebody we had watched and, you know, obviously he was the home run king, King Henry. Went and took our table and maybe 30 minutes later or so, I just kind of glanced up in this restaurant to see where they seated Hank. You know, I started to eat and I glanced up and didn't see where he was. I thought, well, maybe he left. I looked back out there and he's still sitting on the bench. I said, you know, huh, must be waiting for somebody. Another few minutes, still sitting there. So I got up to Hank and I said, Hank, uh, you waiting for some folks? You know, what's going on? You know, I just got up to check. He said, we're waiting for a table. And I said, what? So you're still waiting. And I'm looking at his restaurant. There's tables on the water and the restaurant's half empty. And I'm thinking, wow, this is odd. So I went over to the Mater D and I rattled off several names. Says, Joe DiMaggio, come to this restaurant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. How about Joe Namath? Yeah, oh, yeah. So they get, get right in, right? Oh, yeah, get right in. And I went through a few more names. And I said, then. And I was, I'm not going to say it on the air how I said it. You'll have to read it in the book. I said, then why are those two people waiting for a table? Why are you making them wait? And he kind of looked at me and, you know, it's one of those stuffy places and they got the whole thing going and, you know, prim and proper and all this BS. And I said, nobody should be treated like that. And he, and he, and now he's getting a little, you know, offended. And I said, especially a legend like Hank Aaron. Those other legends you just said, Joe Namath and them, they come here, they eat here. Why is this man waiting? It's wrong. It's wrong on all levels. And went over, got him, seated him. And a guy has the nerve not to seat him on the water. I go back to my table and he seats him like in the back. So we all should have left, but we didn't. We finished eating, I, you know, and Hank didn't want to make a scene. Hank, Hank, had, Hank had been so poorly treated so long he had uh, understood how he was living in this in this system and the systemic uh way that he was treated uh, he he just he was he was just so such an honorable dig dignified guy what he didn't want to start screaming or anything uh but it was just it was just horrendous so i, I pointed at the guy I said what's wrong with that table and then, so they moved him okay so a few I don't remember whether it was weeks or a month went by. I called up Hank. I said, can I do an interview with you on CBS? He said, sure. Well, in that interview, Teddy, we talked about uh, racism in baseball and how he had been denied a big job in baseball because, uh, because he felt of his race and how if this would have happened to a white player, you know, if this would have happened to, um, you know, Joe DiMaggio or somebody, it would have been a financial bonanza, the home run king. Uh, but because it was him, you know, it was just kind of swept under the rug and, 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 you know, he was put out to pasture on his own. And, and, and I said, well, was it, is it ownership or the commissioner? And he says, I can't tell you exactly, but I believe it's ownership. You know, they just don't want to see blacks advance in baseball. Okay. We aired that on CBS. All right. That went over the air and it goes over the air and, um, baseball's mad, the institution of baseball. And so CBS had just taken the, 
the rights from NBC and NBC had been the home of baseball for a long, long time. And so um, commissioner called uh, and uh, read the riot act to the executives at CBS and executives at CBS uh, called me in to his office a week or so later. And I thought it was going to be congratulations because, you know, it was a terrific piece and they had put it on the air. And I could see from the moment I got there, he was upset. And he said that uh, I had led him to a place that I shouldn't have taken him. And I said, what? I said, first of all, these are his feelings and his words, and they needed to be heard. And what he said, you know, is accurate and true. Said, What's the problem? He said, well, um, you put him in a position where, where he, went after, he went after baseball and, and well, taking you off the World Series. So I got taken off the World Series that year. And uh, put on to the uh, NFL Today instead. And uh, so because they were upset with me that I would be asking him about race on television and he was able to tell his story, yet they didn't examine the fact that they had the piece for three days and that the guy that was now taking me off was the very guy who approved putting it on. But the reaction was so negative from baseball because they're more concerned about maintaining the rights and keeping baseball happy than they are about exposing this story and telling true, the true feelings of Hank Aaron and letting him have his day. Uh, so, so Hank, Hank, you know, became obviously aware of that. And, uh, we, we had had this relationship uh, over the years and, uh, I, I, you know, love Hank, appreciate Hank, think the world of Hank. And I appreciate the words that he said about me. One of your greatest moments, uh, if I do say so myself, to stand up for something worth standing up for at your own peril. Um, you know, it was 1991, Teddy. It wasn't, this wasn't the 60s. This wasn't the 50s. I know. 1991, I know. and I'm thinking in, in an empty restaurant in New York City. Yeah, it's, wow. it's, it's, hey, listen, uh, I've put a finish on that by saying, you know, we've come a long way we've we we have and it goes to show you with the point you just made it wasn't the 50s it wasn't the 60s it was 91 we still had a way to go but what i will say is that we have and we continue to really work at being better uh and more whole and right as a country as a great country and um it's moments like that that reminds you that we got to always work at it and um, be aware of such things, how far back they go, uh, but how far we've come. So that's that's a thank you for sharing that story, Jim. Uh, I'm I'm not gonna make you share anymore because I don't want this to be an audible uh, book reading where you gave it all away. But I'm gonna put it up again because really, it's it's just it's just a tremendous book it's a tremendous man writing the book and special special people in the book and you get to visit with them all it's tremendous and book will be available tuesday november 10th jim i want to be mindful of your time thank you so much for doing this we really appreciate you we wish you all the best with the book and i look forward to bumping into you around town in the palisades ken thank you so much for having me on teddy Thank you very much.
you know, you know how much I think of your work and, and the great contributions that you've made to boxing and to broadcasting. Uh, I'm honored to be on your program, and uh, I really appreciate it. We're, we're glad to have you, Jim. Appreciate you. By the way, you said the audible, uh, the, the audio portion. There is an audio portion, and, and people might get a kick out of this. The introductions by Vin Scully. Oh, wow. The, the preface is read by Bob Costas, who also reads the chapters like a lineup card in a baseball game. Tom Brady reads the foreword that he wrote. Oh. Uh, Carol Burnett, who I uh, is my last chapter, uh, contributes to the last chapter. And the great Snoop Dogg. Uh, oh, wow. Perhaps the acknowledgments. Wow. <laughs> just, just when I thought it couldn't get better, that gets better. Wow. That's, that's pretty impressive. Please, you got to get that book. Uh, you enjoy it as much as I have. And again, Jim, thank you. Thank you for your kind words, Teddy. Thank you very much. It means a lot. Appreciate Thanks, guys. It.